And welcome to episode one of the Data-Driven Security Podcast. My name is Jay Jacobs, and you're listening to episode one of the Data-Driven Security Podcast. Joining me right off the bat here is Bob Rudis. Bob, how are you doing today? Jay, oh, it's a nice balmy 40 degrees here in Maine after night being negative 15, so I'm actually doing pretty good. Nice, nice. Say polar vortex. Vortex. Let's get that out of the well, way. Well, yes. You know, this is the this is the aftermath of the polar vortex. There we go. Good. Now that's out of the way. We can drop the weather. I was actually going to work that in at some point, so thank you for getting it out of the way. Now. Yeah, we just had to get it out of the way real quick. So. Uh, Bob, what's been going on the last few weeks? We've uh, we've done some work here. This is our first real podcast. The other one was just a, a primer. So what I, else? I, what else is I, going on? There were, what do you mean real? The last one was real. It existed. It was, there's there's so evidence of its existence. Prime in the pump. Okay. Well, I'll give you that. This is episode one, as you were as you were saying. Uh, we've had a couple blog posts, I think, since then. The uh, I think the I think one of the better ones though was your really spiffy, beautiful display of breaches. Breaches never look so good, Jay. I gotta tell you. <laughs> um, the uh, I think and people should check that out. Uh, you can get a, both an idea how to work with uh, D3, but at the same time get an idea of just what some of the VCDB contents look like as well too. And if you read that, you'll know a little bit more about the VCDB. You can head over to datadrivensecurity.info for that, for the podcast, for episode zero, and for this one, obviously, if you're listening to it. And uh, we were just accepted into the Stitcher radio directory, so just uh, props out to Stitcher for that. And hopefully you can pick us up on there, too, as you're listening to all your NPR and other good podcasts out there that you've got. So just real quick, Bob, if if people don't know... by chance, just by some rare chance, people don't know what Stitcher like, is. Like everybody on this particular podcast doesn't know what they are. Yeah, uh, it's a huge podcast directory. Uh, they they primarily do in like you know they're really big with the NPR crowd, which is one reason why I was like well, I listen to them and, and I use that. But they they've got tons and like I think tens of thousands of things you can listen to on there. Uh, and we're actually on if you go to the datadrivensecurity.info/slash/podcast. We're also in a number of other podcast directories, soon to be on the BlackBerry podcast directory, too. So uh, we're pretty much anywhere you need to be from a podcast perspective. Right. And uh, you also did a couple of posts on the uh, converting from Excel to our thinking. Which this maybe, is true. Uh, once yeah. we introduce our guests, maybe we can talk about that later on in the show or something. Well, you know, given that they all prim- primarily use Excel as their, as their tool of choice. So, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to see the looks on their faces when you said that. So, um, All right, why don't we bring in our guests? So we have three preeminent security data scientists joining us. Actually, they're far more preeminent than I think we are, uh, joining us today on episode one. And uh, we can uh, bring up the first one. Uh, Alex Pinto, say hi. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Hi, Bob. Hi, Jay. Hi, Hello. everyone who hasn't shown up yet. Alex, <laughs> did you want to give a brief uh, bio of yourself, your background, and, and where you're coming from? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, um, well, I, I basically started out uh, my career as an information security specialist, consultant, and everything. And uh, for the longest time, I've, I mean, I've worked with several uh, big companies as a, as a consultant, and mostly out of Brazil, which was where I'm originally from. By the way, Bob, uh, I'm I'm currently in São Paulo right now. It's about 90 degrees, so yeah, it's a little bit warmer. But uh, anyway, the point is that um, 
a lot of the work that I did was mainly on on SIM implementations and running security operation centers. So there was a lot of it. Uh, it was very frustrating, right? Because uh, I couldn't really get things to work the way I I thought they should work. And uh, as uh, as uh, as I, I worked through this, and I, I mean, it, it, this was, of course, very challenging, as everyone who has ever run any live stream implementation is aware. I actually took some time off from my, my day job, and I started researching uh, data analysis and machine learning and things like that. And lo and behold, I, I suddenly realized that these things could go together, and that's pretty much how I got into this position and started started really doubling down and learning as much as I can about uh, data analysis, machine learning, and data science in general, I guess. You're, you're, if I remember correctly, Alex, you're a recovering ArcSight engineer too, right? Oh, a recovering ArcSight engineer, yeah. a recovering QSA. Um, I have a lot, a lot of sins to atone for. Wow. That's true. And and we have to call out your shirt real quick too. Can you can you tilt your camera down and show your shirt? Yeah, sure, sure. It's funny because when I ori when I originally met uh, Bob and Jay, they were presenting at the RSA conference last year about a, a data visualization, and they were telling about how they don't like pie charts. So I made sure to wear my XKCD pie chart shirt to the podcast today. So let's, anyway, I'll, I'll let's be perfectly clear. I'm I'm the person who believes that pie charts should die. Jay is actually a pie chart lover, so I I wouldn't say lover. Who produced pie chart Friday? Who produced two pie charts Friday? I I did. Yeah. So let's not like I think that speaks right there. So yeah. Okay. We can just leave that and and we'll move on. Okay. I think so. Up next we have uh, Michael Reitman. Say hi, Mike. Michael. Sorry. Hey guys. Uh, I guess a little bit about my background. I also met you guys at RSA, and I saw your talk on data visualization. But that was probably like week three of my experience in information security. Before that, I'm a, a recent PhD dropout. I was doing a PhD in operations research, and then I dropped out to work in fraud detection and finance, which was uh, enlightening but a lot less interesting. And then got somehow led into RiskIO started learning about security, but my approach to it has been kind of a carte blanche to begin with. Just past year I've been learning about security, but at the same time abstracting it to the mathy concepts that I've been familiar with before. Nice. And you just, um, actually you and Alex both did a talk at, uh, was it Black Hat last year? Uh, B-Sides. B-Sides? Okay. At, in that whole cluster of stuff in Vegas, right? Yeah, um, during the debacles. And you, you did some really interesting work uh, through, can you mention your employer? Is that So I work for RiskIO, and we do, uh, we focus on vulnerability management and prioritization. And the SIEM part of it doesn't enter the equation except for data we pump out from the aggregations of other people's work like Alex. And you just uh, had a paper with Dan Gear as well, right? Right. And that and was that... about more or less the same thing. It was about uh, strategies, optimal strategies for prioritizing intermediating vulnerabilities. Right. So we kind of try to debunk a lot of the myths that we think kind of exist around the government standards and the ways that people have been doing remediation recently and put some real-time data to it that we've gathered from a bunch of places. Which was an excellent, excellent paper, by the way. And I'm sure Bob will get a link to that in the show notes. And let's move on to Mr. Russ Thomas. Russ, how are you? I'm great. How are you guys doing? Good. Oh, good. You wanna you wanna give people a background on yourself and 
talk about some stuff that you've done? Uh, sure. So uh, I'm currently a security data science, scientist at uh, Zions Bancorp and uh, relatively new in that position, pretty excited about it. Um, I have been a full-time PhD student leading up to that, and that's in the computational social science department at uh, George Mason University. And uh, prior to that, uh, I was in industry for quite a long time um, in consulting, uh, process reengineering, organization transformation, enterprise architecture, uh, economic value analysis. Um, prior to that, I was Hewlett-Packard uh, in computer design, manufacturing, and marketing. So compared to everybody else on the call, uh, actually maybe except for Michael, I'm relatively new to the information security world. I've only been involved since about uh, 2007. Um, but and my perspective is uh, very much uh, from the business and economic side. Uh, so I try to apply um, analysis that bridges between the technical world and the business world to drive better decisions. That's good. The, the driving better decisions, I think, is an important thing. And actually, that's a, a nice sort of segue into a first question that, you know, I created a list for this podcast of questions, and I have a question right off the bat that is not on the list. And it's, it's a relatively easy question, and it's something that Bob and I struggled with early on as we were working on some of our stuff about, do we use that term data science? You know, because it's a, a heavily, in a sense, abused term, right? But it does have some meaning, it has some weight to it, and it is describing something real that's out there. Um, so I guess I'll open it up. Maybe, Russ, you want to take the first stab at it. What is data science? Uh, <clears throat> so I think we should... First, accept that it's an informal term and not get too hung up on is it real science and <clears throat> is you mean it like computer science and, and science. you know is it comparable to a social scientist and so on. Um, however, I do believe there's a distinction between somebody who's doing, regardless of what their title is, if they're doing what we would what I would call data science work versus data analysis work or data reporting work. And the difference comes in less in the technique, and it's less in the volume of data or whether they use Hadoop or not, or even the output. It's much more to do with formulating the problem, understanding the type of analysis that's going to um, discern what's the underlying behavior. And I think the line of uh, the method and the line of thinking you use is much more uh, aligned with what. Uh, social scientists do or experimental scientists about framing the hypothesis, thinking about how the data will come together and, and prove or disprove certain things, thinking about the, the, the uh, uncertainties involved and so forth. Um, and also, whatever estimate you come up with, how can you improve it over time? And that type of thinking and those type of skills does tend to go beyond uh, what I've seen in statisticians or data analysts. Um, so I know, I know the tools, I know the, the machine learning methods get a lot of press and get a lot of uh, attention, and that's what shows up on uh, 
job requests and so forth. But um, I think the real power in data science comes from the analytic thinking that frames the issue in the first place and then thinks about the right tools for the job. Great. Uh, did anybody else want to add to uh, that rather eloquent uh, phrasing there that uh, Russ did? Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine who's in med school, and after about the fourth beer, after I was trying to explain to him what I was doing, he goes, aren't all scientists functionally data scientists? This seems to be kind of an abstraction of what's already going on. I think that segments well to what Russ is saying, how we try at Risk.io to avoid the complexity that comes with implementing things like a lot of Hadoop clusters or machine learning algorithms. If you can do it and solve the problem or frame the problem in a different way that gives you the same answers in a simple way, that's just as data science-y as any of the requisition terms in the HR hit list. It's rather the investigative thinking and trying to see what data you need, how to use it, and just get in the trenches and do it. So isn't every form of data science, I mean science, a, a data scientist? Well, I mean, surely there's like analysts, as Russ is saying, right, that are using the output of the data scientists, but there's probably a data scientist in medicine as well that doesn't call himself right. that. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Alex, you have anything to add? Yeah, I mostly agree uh, with uh, what was said. I think the, the analytical aspects and actually formulating hypotheses and everything, I think it's on the, it's on the, the core of what the, the so-called data scientists are trying to do. And, uh, but I mean, it, it has to, there has to be, I think the term science is not that loaded because it's trying to approximate uh, uh, things that we wouldn't normally apply those techniques to actual science, pretty much like, like Russ mentioned. And uh, we need to have a term, right? We need to have a, a sexy name to call people that are actually trying to do this, even if, even if it is to, to make it like more sellable or everything. But uh, something I always tell people about this is that uh, don't be afraid of data scientists. What you should think about a data science, the data scientist today is what the webmasters were like on the 90s, right? They're the guys that you hire and they kind of have to know everything and they know just a little bit of everything like running Hadoop or no statistics or machine learning and everything. Some will be better in one thing, some will be better in other things. And uh, I, I think that in the next three to five years, there's going to be a lot of specialization there. Data science will be like IT, right? And you have all sorts of different people and all sorts of different roles around that. Yeah, that, that, I was actually going to ask um, both Alex and the other two, and, and, and you, Jay, obviously, feel free to, to chirp in. But um, I, you're all probably familiar. Well, I, so I know for a fact that Jay and Russ are because they had to actually see it in the book. But um, everyone else has to be familiar with uh, Drew Conway's uh, data science Venn diagram about what are the components of what make up a data scientist. So I guess the question that I would ask to just extend that data science question is, is do you feel that that is an accurate description? Granted, it doesn't cover every single component, but is it, is it an accurate overview of what all the components of a data scientist would actually be? And, and the Venn diagram, real quick, for those who haven't seen it, um, it's, it's an overlaying of three circles, right? And the three circles are um, the hacking skills, essentially programming and being able to create stuff. And the, what are the other two, the statistical skills? Yeah, so the, it's the attacking skills, and, and we'll have a link to the, the actual Venn diagram, and it will also show up if you got the, 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 uh, the static version of the podcast. Uh, math, and st math and stats knowledge, and then you know, basically substantive the, expertise, and then the you know, it kind of intersects in the middle for all of those. So it's a combination of being able to, to program and work a computer, 
the domain that you're working in, in our case, information security, and then the use of use of math or statistics. So, what was your question? I'm sorry, I derailed. No, no, that. no, it, no it, it was probably good to explain it. I was just asking, you know, the the three folks, you know, do, do they tend to agree with the components of the diagram and feel that that's an accurate description, or is it missing something, or is is it, it or doesn't it reflect what what their views of a data scientist are? I think of those things as an axis, and to use a data science term, if you were to plot against those three and sprinkle data scientists on it, I think they'd be pretty far along the continuum. Like some people might have a lot of subject matter expertise and statistical knowledge, not so much a math background, but have a resource in the office or be familiar enough with Google to reach out there. So I think those are skills that are prerequisites, and people are always somewhere in the continuum. For example, I started a year ago, my skills in information security, ex-subject matter expertise were nil, but I work with Ed Bellis, who's a seasoned security professional, and then I can use him to complement the lack of industry-specific technology. Mm. Yeah, I, I find the Venn diagram is uh, accurate at uh, sort of a top level of the sorts of skills and sorts of thinking that need to come together. Um, what it doesn't do and what no diagram like that can do is show well, what's really different when those skills come together. So I don't think it's the case that you simply have these skills or these ways of thinking in your toolbox and you pull one of the three or two of the three out when you need them. There really is something, um, I think, a special contribution when you're thinking about the technical aspects of solving a particular analytic problem, the statistical aspects, and the business aspects. Because, as Michael said, sometimes it takes you away from the fancy pants way of doing things to a simple thing that's going to get you a result that is clearer for the decision maker, or it's more repeatable given the fact that you've got uh, not very clean data. And if you try to do more with it, you'd just be uh, making a, a, a pile of hash. So um, I think, uh, as Alex said, as time goes on, there's going to be <clears throat> more and more refinement and specialization. And <clears throat> hopefully, uh, managers and hiring professionals will get a clear idea of what constitutes a good and competent data scientist in what circumstance. Right now, it's a big grab bag, and everybody says they want uh, some big pile of skills, and most of them don't really know why they need all of that. And I think, uh, I think it's... Uh, behooves us, uh, since in information security there's relatively few people doing data science type of work, it behooves us to really show how this can be of value. So it ceases to be sort of a mystical behind the curtain thing and we can be role models for people to follow along and you know help shape what educational programs is and help shape uh, hiring practices. So that, that actually brings me to a question I wanted to ask Alex first. Um, and that is, you know, sort of tying that back into how this actually affects us, how this applies, right? And so, Alex, I want to direct this question to you and ask, um, how has the use of data and the things that you've learned within machine learning and, and data mining, how has that impacted how you approach information security? Like, what what's the big deal, right? Well, uh 
Well, Jay, the way the way that I see it, and uh, what really uh, brought me to the to this this kind of uh, to using this kind of technique and figuring out how it would apply to information security, is the is how uh, it is a very asymmetric game, in the sense that uh, there's so much more um, advantage to the attacker than to the defender, which uh, it's like if you I mean if you if you do any sort of uh, of light reading on this, it's uh, the only defense, the only the only advantage that a, def a defender would get would to be actually know their environment and know what they have inside their network, so they could actually okay, you should, if you're coming in, you go through here, then you go through there, so you're not gonna, I'm going to be able to detect you properly, and that doesn't that doesn't even help. That 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 is not feasible nowadays because of the amount of information that we have, the amount of log data that's generated, the amount of assets that we don't really know if they're there or not, and uh, Mostly it's not even uh, something, uh, the problem is not even there's not enough people in the information security area. Sometimes not, there's not even enough people in the IT side of things of the companies to actually uh, account for everything that's going on there. And uh, the way that I see data analysis is uh, the, the, what really uh, uh, made me so attracted to it was that it was a way to level up the game, uh, to level out the game, I mean in the sense that you don't have enough eyes to look at everything that's going on so maybe you can have you put, can put together machine learning uh, algorithms you can put together data analysis discovery processes that will help you uh, uh, even a very small team gather the insight that they need to, to what they should be doing next and uh, that's pretty much been the 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 essence of the research and the work that I've been doing with NLSOC project so far it's pretty much given that you have uh, you have uh, a bunch of logs or or packet data or something like that. What kind of insights could you find uh, based on the information that you historically have in your environment? And do you have a, a an example of something where you've applied this technique and you've come out with some benefit, right, for for a, a customer or an organization? Uh, okay. For instance, I can tell you a little bit about the the. So there was the original the original uh, presentation I did uh, in the middle of last year, which was um, in it was in in Defcon and Black Hat, uh, was about trying to given whomever has been attacking you, and I use the term attacking very loosely. I only had as 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 a data set at the time. I only had fire, blocked firewall data from from SANS, DShield, and from some other sources. So let's say okay, if a guy hits you more than the the median or the average. Let's assume that this guy was really trying to attack it. That was not a that was not an accident. And uh, you would find that if you would cluster those uh, those from where these IP addresses were coming from, if you consider country codes, if you consider uh, uh, AS uh, regions specifically, if you consider uh, NAT blocks, you could find there was a lot of uh, correspondence between. So if someone was attacking you from a specific region of the internet they would continue to do so for a few days at least so you could you could uh, there was a lot of i mean from information from yesterday until 30 days back if you try to use that to predict who was going to attack you on the following day it was pretty accurate to a level of 90% so right. it was i mean it was a just a simple proof of concept that i put together in um, to try to see okay there's there's a bunch of data here we might we're not even looking at that could already be useful for 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 us to triage or to choose what we should be looking at next. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Um, Russ or uh, Michael, did you guys have any uh, sort of practical applications of how the use of data is impacting the world of information security? So a lot of my work has been about exactly what Alex is, uh, is talking about, which is reducing the amount of work that you need to do to get ahead of the attackers. And specifically, we do a different type of forecast of trying to correlate the vulnerabilities of a particular client or organization to live breaches that are happening around the world and seeing if that has some predictive value. So the idea there is if we can filter out the stuff that isn't being attacked or filter out the things that you are not likely to be attacked on, we can reduce the slew of information that a defender has to go through. And that's the same kind of type of competitive advantage, just slicing out the unimportant stuff through a, a data-driven bird's-eye view of the attacker-defender game. I think right, and that's actually kind of interesting because there's that goes back to something um, I think Dan Gear talked about in a recent presentation he did. But we as people within our information systems are now capable of building a, a system so complex that we can't understand it. Right? We can build something so incredibly complex, and this is um, one of the benefits I think of moving into this data-driven world. Right? This this machine learning that we can take that complexity and start to simplify it. Right? I mean, we have to apply some, some sometimes relatively complex machine learning algorithms, sometimes incredibly simple, right? but we can do that, and you mentioned it, Michael, about simplifying it, right? making something more simple, taking this very complex thing, and you mentioned it too, Alex, about a huge, you know, a huge amount of logs coming into a central location, taking all that information and, and going through it, parsing through it, having the machine actually learn what this stuff is and make some decisions for us, to present a, a more simplified view, right? And I think that that might be a, a key point there. Let's get let's kind of get technical for a minute because there's a lot of tools and things like that available to us, and um, I, I think we might get some interesting answers about the the tools and techniques and sort of things that you enjoy working with. Um, you know, if somebody wanted to find out the type of work that you do, what would what would the keywords be that they would type into Google? Right, I mean, like, you know, like I know for me, it's a lot of R, you know, the R language, uh, and a lot of visualization with ggplot and things like that. But maybe uh, Russ, what do you have any any favorite go-to tools that you you like jumping into? Uh, sure. Um, Is it so, all Excel? <laughs> I have uh, done a lot of useful, productive work in Excel and its predecessors, going all the way back to Quattro Pro. Um, and uh, I, and actually, I think Michael might need some ex explanation of what Quattro <laughs> Pro is because I don't think he was born at the time that that well, actually. It was a spreadsheet program that ran on abacuses um, <laughs> and and charred bones. I think it was the. Uh, the yeah. I thought that was a Netscape extension. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, it was only available to witch doctors and other anointed ones. Um, so anyway. Um, my go-to tool over the past uh, three years has actually been uh, Mathematica. Um, so it's an integrated, um, you know, computer-aided math environment, very good at symbolic math, huge uh, number of built-in functions and libraries. Um, and <clears throat> it's, of course, being eclipsed by R and or the R Python complex. Um, so it's not as popular as it used to be, a competitor of MathCAD. 
But it's something uh, that I learned uh, early in my PhD program. I needed it for a particular purpose. Uh, it's actually really good at uh, rewrite systems and production systems. And like anything, the more you use it, the better you get at it, the more comfortable you feel, the more you use it. So there's some path dependency on choosing any yeah. tool. And I remember thinking at the time, gee, I don't know whether I should use Mathematica or Python for this. In fact, I had a course where the teacher was trying to get us to use Python. <clears throat> and I couldn't get all the packages loaded. I kept loading things and going to this and this. And this is before I found uh, NThought or whatever the integrated distributions were. And I just finally threw up my hands. I said, this sucks. I'm going to go back to Mathematica what I, and what I know. And I've been sort of stuck on that path ever since uh, until the fall here when I've gotten back a little bit into R and uh, Python. So um, I use it for statistics. I use it for a lot for simulation. I use it a lot for rapid prototyping. Um, and I also use it a lot for what I'll call exploratory thinking. So if I'm thinking about like a functional relationship between variables and well is this better modeled as an exponential, a double exponential, a logarithm, what would these look like? And uh, I'm the type of person I like to see and experience and visualize what I'm thinking about before I actually embed it in code. Um, so I find it a very useful interactive environment for that. Yeah. Uh, going forward, it's very clear that uh, in my new job, I'm going to be using uh, R and Python and uh, related systems uh, in our in our production environment. Michael, I think I got pretty lucky that a lot of my schoolwork has been done in R. It's kind of been recently the de facto in at least mathematical classes. Uh, but I find myself drifting further and further away from it. Interestingly enough, because of the production level environment that I work with. It's written in Ruby. So interfacing and pulling the data out of there is more of a challenge. And I find that I can do certain slicing and certain analysis as I'm pulling data out instead of once I already pull it into R. So I think the things that I do are kind of what Russ is talking about, where you visualize uh, distribution and try to think of the relationship between those two variables. I find uh, visual inspection by histograms, and I just have some functions that I've pre-written myself that do that for me in the production environment. In, uh, in Ruby, then, right? Huh? In Ruby? Yeah, they're incredibly slow, but if you keep loading <laughs> the data in and you keep seeing the changes, you can kind of intuit what kind of distributions you want to play around with and what they need. As right. the visualization is happening, kind of like a dashboard for the data that's getting fed into the production environment. And then there's a tool I've been using for the past three or four months called Wizard Pro. It's written by Evan Miller, and it's a multi-core, it's written in C, and it's a multi-core package for, uh, for OS X that can't do big, big data, but it can do as much as you have RAM, you slice out a part of your data and preload it in. It'll pre-compute every distribution, every potential t-test, and every permutation of logistic, logistic regression. So you can scale down from there and just kind of click on variables, see if they end up uh, being meaningful or not for a specific subset of your data. So it's almost like incredibly fast, zero-work sampling with the visualization built in. And for me, since most of what I do is look at impact of particular variables on more or less the same outcome, which is will you get breached on this or not, that's perfect. Just keep taking different samples and seeing if it's significant. Alex? 
Do you have a favorite set of tools or languages? Well, I'm, I'm mostly an R guy as well. So it's, um, it's one of those... The thing, the thing about R is that uh, what, I've, what I'm trying to do right now, it has probably overgrown R for a while. But uh, since it was where I, where I started actually learning this and actually where it made most sense to me to express what I was thinking when we were talking about machine learning and data analysis, I kind of stuck to it. And uh, it's impressive how much, um, how much you can actually get done. People always say about, oh, R is like, yeah, it's only good if you fit your data in memory or stuff like that. It's only for small-scale experimentation. And I mean, if there was a, if there was actually a conference about how do you architect a production system in R, I actually, spoiler alert, there isn't. I probably would be able to to present at it and tell you what were the crazy things that I put together in order to be able to to do the work in the scale that I'm doing right now. I really wish I could have the time to to move away from it, and uh, it probably w that will probably will happen when I'm starting to do something that's more real time oriented. Right now, it's all very batch based and. Uh, I can pretty much script everything to, to, to run in small slices. It, it works out pretty well. And uh, uh, one of the things that I've been eyeing a lot and I'm very excited about is the new uh, Berkeley data analytics stack, which the people, so you, I don't know if you guys heard about Spark and Shark. And uh, I've actually been there and did a few of their workshops. And uh, I mean, it's nothing new. It's like, uh, so Spark would be an equivalent to, to what, to MapReduce in general. And Shark is an equivalent to, high, actually, Spark would be an equivalent to Pig. But, uh, and they have this new ML, um, I forgot, it's ML, probably MLlib, something, something as easy as that, where they're actually implementing those machine learning primitives. And uh, the cool thing is that you can see that there's an architecture. There's a single architecture there. So you don't have to bother learning about Pig and Hive and all the, and Mahout, which is a complete nightmare. And uh, you you can have like a single uh, a single unity of vision on how you implement things. So that's probably what I'm going to be playing with in about in a few months from now, or I really want the the system to get to. But as far as as it goes now, it's it's mostly R, and I really enjoy it. I hate it. I love it. I do not do the, the old style uh, assignment just like Jay does. I, I, I changed it to equal a long time ago because I couldn't be bothered to type the two, the two letters. But anyway, I think I still think I, I still do R. In spite of that, I still do R, Jay, and I apologize okay. for that. So I, I now have to say, Jay, the next book is going to be with Alex and, and not you. So I'm sorry. Yeah, because he does the <laughs> equals instead of the assignment. Yeah, just that uh, the extra character savings there will be just amazing, and the, he won't and he won't yeah. be nearly as picky on the back end of it as somebody else might have been. Yeah, that. So for for those who don't understand where we went with this, and in, in R, you don't assign a variable with an equals according to convention, and there's actually some logic behind that. But you actually do what the less than and a dash uh, create an arrow, so you. Take a data chunk and you assign it with a with that arrow. Yeah, and and in actual fact, there are four different ways in R to do an, an assignment, and you know, thankfully most people end up using you know two of the two of those four. But you can actually do the arrow in the opposite direction as well too, which there, right. and I've actually seen that in some more recent stuff people have been putting yeah. out. Uh, I I had a jump. I had a more slightly extended thing to that particular question, Jay. If, if you don't mind me jumping sure. in on that. Um, so it 
you know, I heard Mathematica, that's one commercial tool, and I, I didn't realize that the Wizard, that, that, that Mac Wizard program was actually out of its initial, like, secret announce phase, so that's kind of cool. I'll have to take a look at that, so I appreciate hearing about that, Michael. The, but uh, that's, that's commercial, too. It's, it's relatively cheap. It's, it's definitely cheaper than Mathematica. But I guess yeah, I've heard a lot of open source, you know, from the three of you guys, and Jay and I obviously talk a lot about open source in the book, and also we use a lot of open source. Do you see the commercialization of this uh, space happening, or do you see jumping onto that in your production environments, or do you do you see continually relying upon kind of building stuff yourself, yourselves, and using open source for, for those solutions? Uh, actually, I've been thinking about this as we were talking about it. Uh, with regards to that dashboarding kind of tools, we've just jumped on Elasticsearch, which Wikipedia is transitioning to as well. And it's a tool that's kind of a database abstraction layer which the app interacts with. It's very fast at doing search and query of and facet searching of a bunch of different data. But it also has really great built-in statistical facets, which from an open source world, I was describing to you the process I go through to do an analysis of a particular histogram as the data gets imported. There are open source tools which are now starting to do the same type of dashboarding and analysis of your distributions automatically as you load the data in. And I think keeping those and seeing how those evolve over time, less and less of the commercial products are necessary. So often my pitch for Wizard Pro, I guess, was it's a great way to do something which is hard to code up using the open source tools, which you could do, but it saves you time. Uh, more and more as these open source products are developing in the data science and directions, it becomes easier and easier to find use cases that are abstracted between all five of us. And then I think there's less need for something like uh, the analysis done with it. I, I would recommend, and I think this is true in our operation, that uh, people not get locked into any particular stack or path or tool. If you can stay flexible, and stay connected somewhat to the proprietary tools and and because they're developing. Those vendors are working hard uh, to face the, the open source challenge and they're redefining themselves and they may come up with new license agreements and there's certain advantages to using them. Likewise, uh, there's advantages to having your foot in the water or having people on your team that have some expertise at some of these different tools. I was thinking as Alex was talking about a a new uh, uh, dynamic language that's specifically oriented toward high-performance technical computing called Julia. And uh, it's in a version dot two or something like this, so it's still pretty early. But uh, I think it's worth watching. They've uh, made it so that it's intrinsically scalable to parallel computing and has a lot of the simplicity that a Python would have. If you get too embedded in any one stack or any one language or load up your team where you only have one set of expertise, you may not be able to take advantage of um, something wonderful coming along. And a tool like Julia may make sense only for your most uh, high-performance production CPU-bound applications. So, at least for the foreseeable future, I can see a lot of advantage of having a diverse tool set, a diverse set of skills, rather than sort of being the one-trick pony, which I think is just going to be less versatile. Yeah, for, for listeners who aren't familiar with Julia, we'll make sure to put a link up on there. There's a, a bunch of um, fairly uh, entrenched R folk that are sort of jumping to it right now, and 
the interesting thing about it is it's an um, interpreted language just like Python and RR, but it, it actually has um, almost the performance level of native C code at this point for a lot of the mathematical operations, which is just truly scary and amazing. Uh, so it definitely is something to keep watching and to, to watch for your tool sets for. Yeah, I think the people from the same the people from R that didn't jump out to Python with the the string as factors thing. So there's there's a thing in R where when you're loading some data, uh, you have to you have to tell it to tell R if it's going to interpret a string with uh, as a string or as a, a, a magical uh, construct that it has called factors that will actually just store the string once and then at put numerical values to it. The, the problem is when you do string as factors and you want to, to mine the information from the string, it has some weird behavior. So there's a lot of people who rage quit R because of that, because they wouldn't change the default, and they went to Python. I think the guys who stayed behind R, they, they're thinking about Julia because it's blazing fast. Mostly what people uh, argue about is that R is relatively slow. And of course, I mean, the, I, I, can, I can prove them wrong sometimes, but I mean, jokes aside, I think Julia Julia's going to be awesome in a, in a couple of years once enough people have been able to to create the 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 nest the the actual libraries and everything. Yeah, Jay and I were talking the other day, or maybe it was typing the other day, but I, I was suggesting to him that if uh, given how close in syntax at least uh, a lot of R and JavaScript are, it'd be neat if a lot of it neat or interesting if the V8 engine string handling could get ported over into R just to see what level of boost of speed that could get for some of the text processing stuff there to see if that might keep it on par with some of the other languages. I'll tell you one thing. You haven't really done any real programming in R until you have to actually parse log data with R. That's like... <laughs> <laughs> it's as Good scary time. as it sounds. Good times. So I think I think we're uh, coming to the end here. I have one more question, and I want to go around the horn with it. And maybe, maybe Bob, you can answer this one too. I know coming with my background in information security, there is a, a perception about academics, right? Uh, academia within information security, and I know I love seeing Russ's smile when I bring this up. You know, and it, within information security, it's a very much a boots on the ground industry, right? I mean, like it, I remember, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you worked in information security, you didn't have anybody in security that could not go out and reprogram a firewall, right? Reconfigure it. Right now, we've got a whole lot of specialization, um, and there's been, you know, I've worked with a few PhD candidates or, you know, PhD people with PhDs, and the level that they brought to information security was not was not accepted well. Their their approach to thinking did not lend itself well to information security. I hope I'm trying to portray that correctly, um, and to the point where they were um, essentially outcasts within information security, and we see that a lot, right? We see sort of this. Um, animosity towards uh, academia or academics, right? But as we talk about data science, um, I was talking to a friend of mine who was hiring at his company, and he did not have a PhD. And he said he is he that was like the first filter. He was hiring a data scientist, and the first filter was you had to have a PhD. Multiple PhDs were better, right? And so he was talking about this, and he said, you know, if, if I if I were going through this, I would not hire me into this data science role. And he's a data scientist, very brilliant guy. Um, but there's, so there's a sort of weird shift from information security and we're, we're bringing this data thing into it. And I think it'll evolve slowly, but from coming from a data science perspective as, as data analysts, um, 
what what would the one thing be that you would hope the the people entrenched in information security if there's one thing you could have them pick up from the the world of data science or one thing that you could tell them um, one thing that they could understand about data science right maybe that's the best way to say it what what would that one thing be right if you could teach them one thing about data science because there's going to be a lot of misconceptions a lot of um, I don't know, backlash or whatever that would be, a lot of pushing back on data science, um, a lot of misunderstanding. So maybe, Russ, I'll throw it over to you and, and ask you if you had one thing that you could have uh, the, the information security practitioner understand about data science, what would that be? It's a loaded question, I'm sorry. but So you, you took a left turn because I thought you were going to talk about uh, sort of the cultural or professional clash between academics and... Uh, the, there is that, right? And so to help bridge that cultural divide, mm -hmm. what would the one thing that you would hope people understand to help... I would say this. I would say if more boots-on-the-ground information security people took a real graduate-level course or even uh, high undergraduate-level course in statistics basic frequency statistics, hypothesis testing, that can be extremely helpful in people's day-to-day -day job in ways that they don't fully appreciate until they get a grasp on it. So a lot of people think of statistics in terms of uh, mean and variance or mean and standard deviation, and then after that, their brain gets foggy. And that really inhibits common ground discussion coming from people from a academic background, people more pure math or pure statistics, because coming from the academic world, talking in, in terms of like uh, statistical methods, hypothesis testing, the power of certain tests, this is as easy or common as talking about firewall configuration is for information security people. I've watched people have this disconnect. And I've heard comments, sneering comments about well, those academics and they're in the ivory tower and they're not connected. But I don't really think the professionals uh, as a community and professional uh, industry departments do enough to understand the tools and methods and the thinking that academics can provide to create a common ground to solve problems. And actually, that made me think of something, a quote from Nathan Yao in, uh, what was that magazine, Bob? The Significance, I think it was a magazine? Yeah, he was a, in, yeah it, the, the, the quote that you're thinking of is from there, Jay, yeah. Yeah, and so the, the quote is, um, you know, people think of statistics as this, um, just a big black box calculator. You throw in data and you get an answer out. And he said, those people have never actually worked with data. Right, and that's uh, I think that gets more to the point that you know people see the statistics as this cold, unthinking science, and actually once you start to learn it and you get into it, you realize that it is just as much an art as it is a science. There's a lot of flexibility and sort of calls that the uh, statistician or mathematician would have to put into these things. That it's not a unfeeling, you know, we put in numbers and here's the answer. Of course, this is the answer, right? Um, so I think that's a, a big difference. So, also coming from the world of academia, Michael, you you have that background as well, uh, and you're only you know a year or two in, in information security. But do you see that sort of thing, the 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 difference, the gap in thinking? Yeah, I think so. There was a it was a hard transition for me to go from my default of looking at academic articles and 
trying to do the more complicated capital C correct thing to what is what makes more sense in aiding somebody's decisions and in a business sense. And I think that transition needs to be push and pull, right? The security practitioners who see data science, or I think there's a difference between seeing statistics as a black box tool and seeing data science as a black box tool. So a data science practice surely can be a black box tool as a decision aid for any part of an organization. There's marketing data scientists, there's operations data scientists. I think security needs to conceptualize data science as, and I don't know who I'm stealing this from, as a data science ops, in a data science ops perspective, which then allows you to use it as a tool for aiding the decisions that you're making already. So say you've got a bunch of academics working in a data science role, and you need to, them to help you answer a question. They need to be able to tailor those academic structural answers to your view of statistics as a black box. But additionally, there needs to be some understanding of the type of output they would produce. And I think that also that conception of data science as an operation rather than what we've been talking about, which is what we individually do, will change over the next couple of years. And it will allow for things like using every open source technology you can if you have a structure or an abstraction in place that allows Russ to use Mathematica and me to use Wizard Pro and somebody else to buy an instance of technology but report to the same kind of central source of information. And I don't think, well, certainly I haven't seen this happen at too many places. A good example I've seen is Etsy and Foursquare from listening to them talk about the operations. But these are kind of early stages organic, like we have more data scientists that we can do stuff with, let's structure them. I think once that happens, either an academic or somebody with just a bachelor's who's pretty good at investigative hunting around data can work side by side to produce different types of outputs. Alex, did you did you have any thoughts on this? And do you do you have because you you're not from a strictly yeah, academic background? I have I have an interesting perspective on this probably because I come from the the, the completely opposite side. And uh, the story the story I like to tell is that uh, when I so there is a there is this competition slash conference which is the KDD. I don't know really what it stands for. I'm pretty sure Bob will put some some links there. And uh, there's this very famous data set, which is called the KDD-99, which is the first time, it, it, in 1999, that was the first time that they actually put together something which was like network traffic or something like that to try to fig see if people could pick up, uh, I don't know, some sort of intrusion detection thing based on the, on the packet data or the logs or something like that. So when I started doing this, I would search for recent publications and things like that, and I would find people in 2013 still using KDD-99, and I was like so frustrated. That's impossible. Why, why aren't you looking for real data? There's so much real data there. The fact that you got this to work on KDD-99 doesn't actually mean anything. And uh, of course, I was being very unfair because you have to, if you're actually going to publish something, the data set has to be public as well. And there's a severe shortage of public data sets out there for people to do uh, information security work on, specific, special information security. And uh, this is actually one of the things that drove me to, as soon as I could, to start asking people for data because I knew that whatever results I would find uh, on my little tidy uh, data set that I put together would, I mean, could would possibly not amount to anything unless I could prove it on, on real world. Uh, data sets of some sort. So that, that was actually one of the, the, the divides that I found. I mean, those people, they aren't even solving the problem. Why do I care if you put together 
uh, an ensemble model with 17 different algorithms that is able to beat 1% detection of the KDD99. I think, man, you're just like farming for papers right now. You, you should, there's right. some other problems here that we should be looking at. There is a disconnect. I don't think I don't think the the professionals go to academia enough to tell them what they were for problems. I mean, if I can get to sit sit down with someone who who works with machine learning and try to explain the difficulty and the the breadth of the problem that we're trying to deal with, they they get very excited. Oh my god, I had no idea. It was yeah. so interesting. It was so diverse, and nobody's doing anything or almost anything. That's yeah. it's very very scary. So I think it's it's obviously as everything it's a lack of communication between the parties, and I don't think uh, I mean I might be I I don't know if it, it would be fair to say that both infosec people and academics are not specifically good with talking to other people outside of their fields. Uh, I think that's that's one of the challenges that we have to we have to to look for. And uh, but about the just about the other question about the the, the tip. That what I would tell to information security professionals, I mean, try to learn something about this because the data is going to eat the world. It's scary. It's really, really scary. It's like, it's in in about in a, I, I don't know maybe 10, 15 years from now, you this doing this sort of things will be just like oh I know how to use Excel, and I I almost I almost meant that as a joke in reference to the beginning of the podcast. It, it's going to be very pervasive of our of work in general, because everything will be in such a high volume that you cannot look at the data. You can only look at statistics of the data, and you have to make a decision based on that. Right. I I have seen the future, and it is comma separated. Yeah, that's 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 a good one. <laughs> and uh, just for folks, we will get a link out to. Uh, so KDD is a generic uh, three-letter acronym for knowledge discovery and data mining. Uh, there's a, a whole slew of things. I think I, I think I've, I I'll hook up with Alex to get the specific one for the the competition data he was looking for. There's a a number of ones out there, but uh, we'll make sure we get some links up onto the blog post for this. I think uh, that's the end of my questions, Bob. Did you have anything else that you want to toss out here? Yeah, you could ask some embarrassing questions about you know Alex's personal habits, uh, you know for for Russ or or just you know exactly you know anything about Bellis for 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 Michael. But I I will avoid. Uh, em embarrassing, you know, em employer questions for for both of those guys on there. Um, Leave it I, for a, for an episode way more down the line, right? Yeah, a little further down Future the line. Episode, would, yeah. yeah, I guess the one thing that I would ask, though, it's it's more of uh, something that that I would just ask if if I was maybe interviewing the, these these folks for a, a position as a data data scientist. What uh, what's been the most challenging component? Like, you know, Alex, you sort of have referred to it a little bit, but what's your most challenging component? Which what's been your most I guess biggest challenge on trying to do data science with security stuff. So yeah, so this is a work in progress. The, I think the biggest challenge is how to step from what I'll call obvious and simple analysis, which may not have such a big impact, to much harder, much more conceptually complex analysis that's really going to make a huge impact. By huge impact, I mean significantly shifting how we spend money, where we apply resources, significantly shifting how we engage with vendors, uh, significantly shifting from a defensive to a proactive. Um, getting analysis that drives that type of stuff is not a turn-the-crank operation, uh, and you, you've got to build your way to it by solving smaller problems and, and essentially building up uh, pieces of knowledge. 
and uh, being able to balance those and being able to know, okay, this is what's feasible today. This is going to make a difference. This is going to bias credibility with our stakeholders. And but how do we move toward these these greater areas of contribution? Because if all we do is pick off low-hanging fruit and do interesting things with the easy data analysis, it's it's really not going to move the needle. It's going to be a sideline. Uh, so that's what I would say the biggest challenge is. So I work on the vendor side, and I think the biggest challenge for me has been getting the right kind of data to be able to create the insights that I want to. Um, in general, information security data is not easy to come by. For the most part, you either have to buy it or acquire it yourself or get a small data set to play with. Um, I read a paper when I just started researching InfoSec that modeled this as like a, a stock portfolio problem where an information security practitioner has a certain number of dollars to spend and you need to buy a bunch of vendor software or threat feeds or something like that, and which ones do they invest in? I think that's a fundamentally very interesting question. Which data sources are more important, which can help you with your practice, and assessing those has been incredibly difficult, both because of the secretive nature of some of them, the like vastly different populations that they come from, and then trying to resolve those population issues or those kind of biases inherent in each type of data source to come up with something that actually works on a global scale. I think that cleaning of the data, which is different from the cleaning that people talk about when they talk about command line data science cleaning, uh, like the, the business intelligence cleaning of data, has been incredibly difficult in InfoSec specifically. Oh, I think that, I actually think that Michael, what Michael was saying is is spot on. It's, it's not only it's hard for you to get actual real life data that you can work with, the actual value of the data, or the actual how useful it actually is to yourself, it's always up for discussion. And people, especially people who deal deal with uh, threat intelligence like feeds, they will always be very kind of secretive where it's coming from and what what is there. And um, I mean, if you if you have enough of them and you start doing some comparisons, you actually get to some quite interesting conclusions of on how much alike they actually are. So. It's uh, it's uh, it's very hard to to be able to, and I think that I don't think that that's uh, I don't think that's a general data science problem. It might be an information security problem more, uh, in the sense that uh, the vendors in general in information security they usually they like to keep the balance of knowledge a lot to their side of things, and. Uh, I mean, it's it's uh, and it's uh, and and this is one of the reasons as well that w which I think why why data science and data analysis could potentially help us as a field so much. It could actually start to give us a little bit transparency on what actually is going on and how we can actually best use the the types of data that we have available. Like like Michael was saying, I mean, I have this this budget that I have to spend different types of on different types of things. And uh, how I could potentially put it to use, and of course, I mean, I could cringe about data clean cleansing as well. I, I love there's a guy, there is uh, I think it's the, it's a guy from Claudio. He says that I'm not a data scientist, I'm a data janitor, right? So I spend all my time scrubbing the data to make sure that I can use it. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it's a lot of uh, there. There's a, a data science is, is a lot of. Uh, a lot of anticipation. You're gathering the data. You're finding the data sources. You're cleaning it up. You're making sure everything's running to the scale that you want. And then, like 15 minutes of running a model, and that's it. That's so anticlimactic. Did you want to try and answer that question, Bob, for yourself? 
Yeah, I mean, I I think one of the challenges that that I've seen the most with this, and, and so I I tend to be probably of the of the folks on on this particular uh, podcast episode, and and between Jay and I in, in particular, I, I'm probably the most controversial person, or like more likely to get someone to hit me at some point down the road. But uh, we we make a, or at least I, I I I might take claim to the reference of the use of shamanism in in the book in insecurity, and. I won't necessarily say in, in the work environment that I'm in, but in general, uh, the the practice of security has been relegated to shamans, and uh, from my perspective in the past, which and even even now, which is, you know, closely guarded. I I know security, you don't. Um, I have this deep seated knowledge, and it's this mysticism surrounding this, based upon either industry experience, you know, real world stuff, or or things in the past of how folks know how stuff work, and it's not necessarily based solely on data, or at least data isn't a huge component of, of, of what comes into that. And and I still think there's a reticence to embrace data to help build some of this information, and I think a classic example of, of where I'm right about this, and, and maybe Alex can help either back me up or shoot me down on this, uh, but this the, the current modern-day SEMs are, are nothing more than correlation engines with that are pretty stupid. I mean, you, you can get them to be smarter uh, if you try to work at it, but inherently they're not doing a whole lot of good stuff under the covers. And we'd be if people believed in the data m more than they say they do, or more than it appears that they do, I think we'd have better systems right now for bringing together and integrating the information and making decisions from those things. So I think that's just an example of there. Alex, you can shoot me now or, or or back me up on that. Um, but so for me, it's that it's try, trying to beat through the shamanism and trying to break through that layer and trying to get more more people to embrace this side of it. And you know, I think the three folks that, that that are on this particular episode are great examples of folks that are either you know don't come with a, a, a pre-existing bias towards that shamanism or have or, or understand the need to take that you know security component and apply these actual sound you know you know hundreds of years old. Uh, practices to it from a mathematical and statistical background to be able to get real information from. Well, I, I just I just like to add one thing. It's it's like I told you before, Bob. I have to, I have to get this research that I'm doing done because I need to atone for all my years working as a sim engineer. <laughs> so one of the things that I wanted to add there is this notion of um, getting access to data. Right, we've got this challenge. Um, there there is no shortage of data. Right, I mean we we. There is so much data available, uh, but the problem is the data sharing aspect. And the, the people who sometimes collect data, if it's not directly from a device, if they're, they're collecting from uh, you know, the operations folks or the tickets or something like that, the, the level of focus and, and detail in those tickets vary so incredibly much. Uh, there is such a different priority for people. And then people always attribute, they overclassify. You know, oh, this data is way too secret. Even within an organization, right? You'll have different departments that won't share data because there's some notion of secrecy or security or something that they're afraid of. Oh, I don't want you to touch that data because either you're going to, you know, find something that I don't want you to know, or you're gonna, you know, sh show me to be wrong or whatever it is, right? There's this element of secrecy that everything in the industry has this element of secrecy and it's a little bit difficult then to get at the data and to be able to to do this data sharing thing and to, to get access and things like that so that's another thing that's a component in this so should we go for uh, closing thoughts maybe because we've been talking for quite a while here I think we'll see the value of this data stuff come to be over the coming years I think the first time that 
a machine learning algorithm predicts that there will be malware on a target POS system is the first time it will be a cascade of people above in the C-level. Understanding that this is necessary as a preventative tool and understanding the value of this side of security rather than the, you know, we bought IBM so we're fine side of security. Not to, it's not reflecting the employer, I don't like the entity. I think the, the results will speak for themselves. And when the results are wrong, I don't think that's any different than the status quo. So I think it's an inevitability that this kind of data-driven insights will lead us to, I don't know if a more secure place, but certainly a more operationally efficient security. Russ, did you have uh, any closing thoughts that you want to tack on? Yes, I do. Um, I would like to encourage all the listeners to do something in this field. To actually, if you're interested, if you're curious, if you think you might want to do something, to actually do it. And I suggest you start with the book Data Driven Security because it is a fantastic, easy to use, talks in your language on ramp, takes you from ground zero to you can actually put it to use. And once more people get experience, just even base level experience, then they're going to start to see oh, this is where it can have value. It'll start to demystify it. You'll be able to start to work with people that are more specialized in statistics or more specialized in uh, certain types of programming, and we'll start to see better results. But in general, more security people need to start doing this. And now that this book is out, you can start today. And, and I don't think we mentioned this, but you are the technical editor on the book, so you've actually read the book, right? So, I have, so yeah, this yeah. is not... So, so he's completely and, unbiased whatsoever. And waving puffery. This is actually something I've gone through word for word and line of code by line of code. Good. Okay. And, well, and, and the in plug. the comments that we've had to read from him, I can attest that he has gone through every line of code and every word and, and has had a say in, in how good or bad some of the stuff was as well. Right. So. Yeah. So there, as people, if people read the book, there there is an element of Russ throughout the book. So he's given a lot of feedback, and there's there's been some really, I think, some really helpful changes made because of Russ's feedback and his absolutely. work. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, but it's more like uh, I don't know a, a dash of uh, cayenne pepper on a. No, actually, that, that's the main that, ingredient. No, no that, that's actually great. So, you know, Jay and I built this wonderful souffle, puffed up perfectly, and you like that final bam of seasoning on the end. It just there it is. There Absolutely. It is. Nice. All right. Well, let's let's see, uh, Alex. Do you have any closing thoughts or any parting parting words of wisdom? Yeah, I, I, I was going to point out the Russell thing that he actually had read the book. It's good that you picked that up because it would sound very weird. Right. Very very weird. I haven't read the book, but everybody should read it. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, I haven't read it, but my daughter read it, so yeah, she told me it's good. I think that Russell make, made a very good point, and uh, it might be. I mean, there's there's already that blog post that you guys put uh, around uh, starting up with R. If you if you know if you are working with Excel or things like that, but uh, maybe it should it would be cool to to add some links to some Coursera courses. So if people are interested in in starting to look this up. And uh, of course, nothing would replace actually reading the book. And I think that I haven't read it, but I'm I look I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I just wanted to close out that actually, so what Michael was saying uh, before that, uh, yeah, the first time someone gets a machine learning algorithm that's detecting malware, that's exactly what I'm working on right now. 
and uh, it's what I, I I hope it's it's good enough to show people by by Black Hat and Defcon, so I can that's oh they fancy new algorithm for for the the mid-year conferences, and uh, well, if anyone any of the listeners is interested in this as as an academic or as uh, someone, oh, that might be useful for me. Just just look up the the project page. So it's going to be at the links on with Bob as well. And I'm glad to to chat about what what the kind of stuff that we're doing. There is something else I want to tack on. There's a, a relationship between um, information security and and data science. And I remember the you know years and years ago when I was on the uh, breaking side of things and that feeling of of seeing that first root shell prompt, right? That and it's just wonderful. You know, I I I did this. I I circumvented the way someone meant it to work, and you got this beautiful result. And it's just a little you know pound saying that you have root shell, um, and it's just this wonderful feeling of elation. It's that I get that same exact feeling now from. Uh, running an algorithm against a data set, seeing a, a visualization pop up that shows a, a clear correlation or you know something like that is to me it's that same feeling that there's a very close correlation between you know hacking our information systems and hacking the data from the information systems and so I think that there's there's probably more correlation there than than uh, we made it seem like during this podcast but um, yeah, I'm I'm really excited about where we're headed, and I, I like the point that there's going to be that tipping point when somebody finally makes something commercially available that will detect malware through machine learning rather than signature detection. And and there's been a few academic research papers around this. I know that the all of the seeds are planted, and so when when these start to catch on, it's going to be this explosion. And I think people are seeing that on the horizon anyway. So with that. Uh, guys, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Hopefully we can have all of you on in the future and future episodes. Uh, this has been really great having you guys on to talk about this topic. With that, uh, Bob, any anything else you want to throw in there before we cut this off? Yeah, I'm going to do real quick, uh, the 30-second, maybe 60-second, real quick book mention, not our book. Uh, so on, on the blog post this week, uh, I mentioned a book called Data Smart. It's by uh, John Foreman and I do realize that a lot of folks start in Excel or, or in other things that, that, that are, are, are maybe more visually oriented and more easily graspable. And uh, this is a great book. If you are if you think you know Excel, first of all, get this book because I'm going to guarantee you don't know Excel as well as you think you do. Uh, I, I learned a lot of cool, neat tricks uh, to make actually living in Excel a little bit easier, even doing some data cleanup there. I know I just made Jake cringe by saying that. Uh, and uh, the... Uh, the gateway drug that it provides into learning R and potentially taking that same concepts and you know, applying them to Python or other languages, it, it's all there. So I would you know go out and grab that. We'll throw a link up. There's already, there's already a link on the blog, but we'll throw a link up on the podcast as well. Uh, definitely a good book. Fellow Wiley author as well too. So it's definitely good to support our fellow Wiley authors. All right. I think that's With it. That, let's uh, let's wrap this up and get out of here. So thanks everyone. Bye. All right. Bye everyone. Bye guys. Bye guys. Bye.